Luke chapter 6. If you are using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, it will be on page 863. Let me just say it is, it is good to be back opening God's Word with you. It's uh, been a few weeks. Several years ago in uh think wisdom, our elders determined that probably it was healthy for us as a church for me to preach about 37 to 38 weekends a year. Uh, Up until that point in time, I was preaching 50, 51, sometimes 52 weekends a year, and they thought, you know, it's probably maybe good for me and probably really beneficial for all of you if that's not the case. And so, uh, so they determined 37 to 38 weekends a year provides for some good continuity from week to week in the pulpit, while at the same time really helping to bless us as a church by giving a variety of our pastors and elders an opportunity to, to open God's Word and to preach. And you know, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you have been so blessed and edified by God's Word being proclaimed by other pastors and elders of our flock. It helps to remind us that we are not a church of, of one pastor. We are a church that is led by a plurality of pastors and elders, and it's ultimately God's word, not a personality of a person that's central. And uh, so, But it is a joy to get to, to stand here with you and open up God's word again. Uh, how that practically plays out from week to week uh, at our church is generally through the fall and winter and spring, I preach the majority of the time, which then means during the summer months, May, June, July, and the first part of August, I only preach about 50% of the time. And uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to really invest those summer months into our summer interns. Uh, I would say it's one of the highlights of my role as shepherd here is getting to invest in these young men that God is preparing for pastoral ministry. You got to meet Jake a little bit earlier as he shared some announcements, and you're going to hear from more of them throughout the summer as we make our way through. I would just, I would encourage you to, uh, to look them up, to try to get to know them, to invest in their lives, to be an encouragement to them as they're learning what it looks like and what it means to be a part of a local church and uh, to do ministry. So they're involved in all kinds of things throughout the week, behind the scenes, and uh, even helped in the preparation of this morning's message, which I know will be to your benefit as well as mine. All right, Luke chapter 6. Let me bring us up to speed on kind of where we have been up to this point. So we are picking up with Jesus. He is in the middle of a sermon We could call this the Sermon on the Plain because Jesus has descended back down from the mountain where he had gone to pray, and uh, he has gathered together a large group of his disciples, so not merely the twelve, but a large group of others as well, and he's now launched into some of his most well-known teachings. Now before we actually get to the content of the sermon itself, I want us to try to put ourselves in the place of those who were gathered that day on the plain under the sun to hear Jesus teach. And can you imagine how epic that must have been? What that must have been like to actually sit there and listen to the Son of God in the flesh teach and preach the truths of God. To have the Son of God in the flesh 
begin to, to share and begin to speak about the, the things that God values and the kind of life that God calls his followers to live. It must, it must have been amazing to sit there and listen to the Messiah preach. And then think about the fact that we have this teaching preserved for us today. And we can sit here 2,000 years after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Plain, and we can take in this same teaching with the same benefit of those who had gathered together in Jesus' day. In fact, I would argue that perhaps our benefit is even greater, because unlike those gathered as Jesus was preaching on the plain that day, we who believe and trust in Jesus actually have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. Uh, taking God's word and applying that word deep into our hearts in such a way that as we read the text of Scripture this morning, we can hear the voice of God. We can hear God speaking through His Holy Spirit-inspired word. Like, in these pages, God speaks. That's profound. And so Jesus begins this Sermon on the Plain. If you want to flip your page, maybe back to the left one page, if you have a Bible like mine. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus begins by flipping upside down the common values of the day. It's almost as though Jesus is answering the question, what kind of people does God bless? And his answer is surprising because contrary to the common thought, it's not the self-made or the self-reliant or the self-saving that receives salvation in the end. In fact, in the end, it, those who live for themselves will be, Jesus says, left empty and hungry and mourning. Instead, those who are truly blessed by God those who in the end find the true joy of salvation and eternal life are those who realize their neediness before God. It's those who depend on God for their existence. Those who hunger and thirst after the things of God. Those who weep for the brokenness in our world. These are the people for whom Jesus came. Now, these are the people who are blessed by God with eternal life. You see, Jesus makes it clear in this first part of the Sermon on the Plain that it really has less to do with our bank account. It really has less to do with our popularity and more to do with our attitude before God. It has more to do with our heart. In fact, back in Luke chapter 4, verses 43, Jesus said that his purpose in coming, his purpose in being sent from heaven, is to preach the good news. That's Jesus' purpose, to preach the good news. And this good news is that God had provided a remedy for sin. The good news is that Jesus is the rescuer of all who believe in him. And so now I think what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is describing what it looks like to be those who are rescued by Jesus. You remember that he, Jesus said back, back in Luke chapter 5 verse 32, he did not come to call the healthy and the righteous, 
He came for the unhealthy. He came for the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. And from here, I think Jesus then gives some examples, beginning in verse 27 and following, of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like, what it looks like to have your heart changed by Jesus and to live a countercultural life as a response to this transformation of the heart. So, in fact, I would just encourage you as I kind of walk through a few of these, just to kind of scan your eyes down the page, beginning in verse 27 and kind of going down. What does it look like to live a life of a person whose heart has been transformed? Well, it looks like loving your enemies, according to verse 27. It looks like praying for those who abuse you, verse 28. It looks like doing to others as you wish they would do to you, verse 31. It looks like loving your enemies, verse 35. And that's just, that's just kind of scratching the surface. But you can imagine that the crowd gathered that day listening to Jesus preach. We can imagine that they would have likely heard hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons already. Like they had heard the Pharisees preach, they'd heard the scribes and the religious leaders teach and preach over and over and over again. So the fact that Jesus is preaching is not new. The fact that Jesus, this rabbi, is teaching is not new. In fact, for some, perhaps, the fact that Jesus is even teaching things that are countercultural wasn't necessarily new. In fact, I wonder if there were some who were gathered there that were thinking to themselves, okay, all right, I've seen this before. Here we go again. More things that we are to do. All right, just tell me. What, what is it that I need to do now? What is it that I don't need to do now? What are the things I have to avoid? What are the things I have to pursue? All right, just, just tell me, Rabbi. But here's where Jesus makes it obvious that his teaching is different. Like, this is where Jesus flips the script, so to speak. Because Jesus has hinted at this previously, but here in verses 43 through 45, Jesus gets to the fundamental reality on which all of his teaching is built. This is the fundamental issue here. And follow along as I read Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. The word of the Lord says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, maybe you've heard these verses before. If you are sitting in the morning at your table, coffee in hand, Bible open, and you open up to verses 43 through 45, I'm just kind of curious what your thought process would be as you begin to approach the text. And I think one of the things that we should look at first when we come to a text like this is we should begin to ask ourselves, okay, where are the key words in the text? Like, are there repeated phrases? Are there things that jump out? And I think a significant word is the very first word in verse 43. 
the word for, or maybe your translation has because. The word because there is significant. When we use the word for, like if you tell your kids, hey, don't get too close to the stream for you might fall in. Or don't play in the road because or for the cars go really fast down our street, right? Your reason in giving the because or the for is to demonstrate the foundation of what you have just said. Don't play in the street because the root issue is you could get hit by a car. Don't go too close to the river because the root issue is you could fall in and drown. And so when we look at verses 43 through 45 and we see that it begins with a for or because, it would do do us good to kind of go back and understand, okay, what has Jesus just been saying? Like, how does that fit with what Jesus says now? Because whatever Jesus says in verses 43 through 45 is really the foundation on which what he has just said is built. Last week, Chris faithfully taught on verses 37 through 42 on on judging others. And these verses, verses 43 through 45, then are the support. So let's go back. I want you just to go back to verse 39 with me. Jesus also told them a parable. So Jesus says to them, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For a tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For, or because, out of the abundance of Of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, can you begin to see kind of how these two sections fit together? In fact, originally these were not two sections. So, if you are using an ESV like I am, you see a subheading at the beginning of verse 43 that says, A tree and its fruit. It's good to know that that was not added till about a thousand years after Luke was penned. So that is not inspired, that's simply given by the translators to kind of help us to understand the text or to kind of help us to see different sections of the text. And so they're not harmful necessarily, they can be beneficial, but it's good for us now, to, in our, at least in our own minds for this moment, to kind of erase that. If you have that section divider, because the first word in verse 43 reminds us that these two sections are hooked together. In verses 43 through 45, Jesus is giving us the reason or the foundation on which we are called to judge rightly. He's given us the foundation on which we are are called to first look at our own life and our own heart and the log that's in our own eye before we look at the speck that's in our brother's eye. 
And so, what's the point here? Like, what is Jesus saying? What is fruit bearing have to do with taking the log out of our eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. And I think the answer to that is found in verse 42 in the word hypocrite. You hypocrite, verse 42 says. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck that is out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus is speaking to people who are a lot like us. People for whom it is far easier to see the faults and failings of our brothers and sisters in Christ than to honestly see our own shortcomings in sin. And our default attitude so often is to act like everyone else is pretty broken. But we have our stuff generally together. That on the rare occasion that we do actually fail, it's due to circumstances and not something in our heart. In fact, I think it's one of the ways that we judge with different measures. If we are to go back to verse 37 and 38, and Jesus talks about the way in which we judge. Because isn't it true that we are tempted to judge by the very worst in others and the very best in ourselves? Like when we see other people do something stupid, or unhelpful, or immoral, or unhealthy, we, we're tempted to judge the very worst things about them, well, that must be because they're this kind of person. And yet we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, even when we acknowledge our own failings and shortcomings and sin. Well, I'm just tired. I just had a bad day. It's been a long week. Our kids have been acting up. We assume the shortcomings of others are character deficiencies and our own shortcomings are merely slip-ups. And here, Jesus says, the only way that you and I as the church will be able to judge wisely and to judge constructively, to judge helpfully, is by going to the heart. And that's the challenge, isn't it? getting to the heart. And parents, let me ask you, is it easier to correct your child's behavior or to help them to see what's actually in their heart? Right? No contest. It is so much easier to correct our kids' behavior. Why? Because we can see their behavior. We can address it clearly. We can give them ways to change. You did this. That was dumb. Don't do that. Do this instead. I told you not to do that, and you did that. Therefore, these are the consequences. But the heart is not so easy. The heart, the Bible says, is filled with desires and longings and dreams and hopes. The heart is filled with narratives about reality. But according to Jesus, if we are ever going to help one another grow in godliness, if we're ever going to address the log that is in our own eye and the speck that's in our brother's eye, if we're ever going to help one another grow in the joy of the Christian life together, then we need to understand the importance of the heart. We need to look past behavior and actions and allow the Holy Spirit to examine our own heart to seek to counsel the heart of our brothers and sisters in Christ 
not merely judge their actions. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Jeremiah 17, 9 say that the heart is deceptive above all things? Who can know it? And doesn't Matthew 13, 22 say the heart is led astray by the deceitfulness of riches? And doesn't Hebrews 3.13 say that the heart can be deceived by sin? And doesn't Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 talk about how the heart can be deceived by lust? And if that's true, how in the world do we gauge the heart when the heart can be so easily led astray? How can we actually know what's in our heart, much less what's in someone else's heart? And the answer, according to Jesus, in verses 43 through 45, is we look at fruit. We look at actions and words and behaviors because they tell us a story about the content of the heart. Our words, our actions, our behaviors aren't just fabricated out of thin air. They don't just appear. They flow from the wellspring of life, as we'll see. So, if you're taking notes this morning and have not yet given up hope that there will ever be an outline, let not your heart be troubled. Let me give you the outline this morning. Better, better late than never, I suppose. Two points this morning. First, fruit is helpful for identification. Secondly, fruit is helpful for evaluation. Fruit is helpful for identification Fruit is helpful for evaluation. First, fruit is helpful for identification. Look at verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known, how? By its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So the point is simple. If you have an apple tree in your backyard, it produces what? Apples. Some of you didn't sound convinced. So let's try that again. If you have an apple tree in your backyard, it produces what? Apples. And if you have, let's try this. Tricky. If you have a pear tree in your backyard, it produces pears. Even more tricky. If you have a grape tree in your backyard, it produces Ah, grapes don't grow on trees. They grow on bushes, right? Plants. But they produce grapes, right? Each according to its kind. So you don't, if you have an apple tree in your backyard, you don't go up to the apple tree, right? Try this this afternoon. Go up to your apple tree and say, hey, listen, we've had apples for year after year after year. We're sick of your apples. We want some pears this year not going to happen. You are not going to change your apple tree by yelling at it. And you can't coax the tree. You know, come on. Listen. All right. You, for 12 years now, have produced wonderful apples for our family. And you have fed us and nourished us. And we have had an apple a day and it has kept the doctor away. It has been wonderful. But you know what? This year, let's try something different. Pears would be fantastic. Our kids are longing for pears. And wouldn't it be nice, don't you get tired of just holding apples day after day after day? Wouldn't you like to hold some pears? 
Wouldn't it be fantastic? That doesn't work. In fact, if your neighbors hear you talking like that, you probably notice they're a little less friendly. They happen to not be around so much going forward into the future. Because you can't coax an apple tree to produce pears. Because it's not a pear tree. And you can't change a tree by calling it another name. You can't get pears from an apple tree by calling it a pear tree. Like, we're going to pretend from now on that you are no longer an apple tree. You are a pear tree. You, you can't do that and expect to get pears because it's not a pear tree. I mean, these examples are ridiculous, and so, of course, we laugh. Why? Because we know that a tree is identified by its fruit. You can't make an apple tree bear pears. We know that. But don't we do the same when we expect non-Christians to bear the fruit of the Spirit? Don't we go up to non-Christians and whether we say it or whether we think it, we think, why aren't you more self-controlled? Why aren't you more loving? Why aren't you more peace-filled? Why aren't you more joyful? Why do you use your words to cut instead of to heal? Why do you respond in anger instead of patience? You remember the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit because those are the fruit that the Spirit produces in the believer. In men and women who have been born again, who have been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. Which means it's foolish to expect fruit from someone for whom the Spirit of God does not dwell. We should expect that from Christians. In fact, we should expect the fruit that Jesus has just been talking about in the Sermon on the Plain already. We should be expecting Christians who bless those who curse us and pray for those who abuse us. And we should be expecting one another to do to one another as we would have them do to us. And we should expect one another to love our enemies and to do good and to lend, expecting nothing in return. We should expect one another to be merciful, even as our Heavenly Father is merciful. We should expect one another to judge rightly and carefully, first examining our own heart before we judge others. But the reality is, friends, all of that is the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that produces it in the lives of believers. That's where we can go wrong sometimes when we expect non-Christians who don't have the Spirit to exhibit this kind of truth. This is, in fact, what the Pharisees were all about. The Pharisees were all about getting people who had not been transformed on the inside to conform to an external law code, an external form of righteousness. But it didn't work. In fact, Jesus judges them. Jesus condemns them for that. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you will travel far. You'll go across the land. You'll go across even the seas to make one single convert to your law code, to your system. And then after you have done that, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. 
Because you haven't changed the heart. You just tried to change the behavior. And we can do that too. We can be more concerned that the people we interact with live moral lives than we are concerned that the Lord save them. I've, I've learned the hard way in counseling that it does little good to try to make someone moral if they are not born again. Like, even if I'm somehow successful to help them see the value of morality and to make them moral, at best, all I've done is gotten them to conform to some law code, even if that law code is the law of Christ. And just think for a minute about the last few times that you were angry with someone. Think about it. Last few times you were angry with someone. Maybe you only have to go back as far as this morning. Maybe you have to go back a few days or a couple of weeks. Were you angry because this unbeliever was deceived by the devil or blinded by the God of this world? Or were you more upset that they didn't behave the way you wanted? They didn't drive the way you wanted. They didn't acknowledge the the correct Kroger ordering in the checkout line the way you wanted. Now think about how this applies to your family or specifically your unsaved family members. I mean, what, what occupies more of your emotional energy? That they are lost and in need of salvation? Or the things that they do that you don't like or aren't moral or are sinful or are sensible. What what occupies more of your concentration and more of your, your brain power? That your unsaved family members do stupid things? Or that according to Scripture, the God of this world has blinded their eyes, and you're angry at the God of this world. You see them as a victim of someone who has been blinded by sin. You see, fruit is useful for identification. Because true Christians bear fruit, and if we're ever going to address the heart, If it's the heart that is so important, then we need to know who we're dealing with. And if it's not a believer, then our focus needs to be on the gospel. Our focus needs to be on ministering the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God the Father in love provided His Son to live perfectly as we should have and didn't, and to die in our place for our sin on the cross, bearing our punishment. And God the Father raised him from the dead, defeating sin and death, that all who turn from sin, who turn from unbelief, who trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are made new. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, I would implore you this morning to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Like that can be your new reality this morning. You see, we start there. We begin there. But we also see fruit as important because if we are believers, we should be seeing fruit. 
we should be seeing corresponding behavior. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Let it be a settled principle again in our religion that when a man's conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of someone's heart. That although men live wickedly, they ultimately have a good heart at the root. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. So if we are not going to be hypocrites, if we are going to judge wisely and be useful to our brothers and sisters in Christ in gospel growth, then we need to look at fruit. And they need to look at us. What kind of fruit are we bearing? Is there evidence of the transforming power of the gospel in the fruit that we bear? Is the Holy Spirit at work in us? So fruit is helpful for identification. Secondly, this morning, fruit is helpful for evaluation. Fruit is helpful for evaluation. Verse 45, Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of his heart the mouth speaks so we just saw that fruit the fruit that we bear identifies us it's like a tree the kind of fruit that we bear points to something within us and here now in verse 45, Jesus seems to go one step further by teaching that not only does fruit show the kind of person that we are, but the fruit ultimately reveals what's in our heart. It evaluates us. Our words, our actions, our attitudes, they're like an evaluation, like an x-ray of the heart. And that's true of our normal interactions, like as you go around church today and are talking to people and smiling and interacting, how was your week, I'm doing well, the kids and busy and sports and this and travel and vacation, all those things. But it's also true, in fact, even more true in the moments when we're catch, caught off guard. It's even more true that our words reveal our heart in the moments when we're tired and worn out. when we're stressed, when we're at the end of our rope. Because the picture that Jesus gives is of a jar or a jug of something that contains liquid. And as it spills over, as it overflows, the mouth speaks. And what overflows is just a sample of what's ultimately on the inside. So it's like when you go to Chick-fil-A. Can't go to Chick-fil-A today because they're closed. You go to Chick-fil-A tomorrow. So we go to Chick-fil-A. We've got six kids. Six kids. We've got six of us. We have four kids. Last I checked, there's six of us total. Six drinks is the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> we have six drinks. So we get two and a half of the, you know, the, the cup holders. And they hand them out the window. And it's always you know, their pleasure to serve us. But on rare occasion, they forget to mark which drink is which drink. So our daughters always like sweet tea, our sons always like Dr. Pepper, and Tara and I do Coke Zero. So you get home and you're like, oh no, we have all of these drinks and what's what, and they don't all like the different drinks, and so we got to make sure that, like, how are we going to know? So what do you do? Well, you squeeze the drink just a little bit, right? It comes out the top, 
lick a little bit of it. What is that? Take the straw if you're a little more sanitary, right? Tara's probably more apt to take the straw. I'm more apt to just, oh, let's see what it is, right? And in that moment, the thought never crosses my mind. Oh, yeah, tastes like sweet tea, but I wonder if it's actually Coke Zero. No. Why? Because we know that whatever comes out of the overflow, when squeezed, the overflow that comes out is simply evidence of what's on the inside, right? We don't take the Coke Zero and squeeze it and sweet tea comes out. That's not how it works. And we laugh. We're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Of course, whatever's on the inside is what's going to come out. But isn't it true? That we tend to think that what comes out of us when we're tired, or what comes out of us when we're exhausted, what comes out of us when we're stressed, or when we're frustrated, or when we're weak, or when we're caught off guard, that what comes out of us in those moments isn't actually what's true about us. We think that the me that comes out, the angry me, or the irritable me, or the short-fused me, or the foul-mouthed me, that's not really me. That's just something that these circumstances have produced. I'm usually a patient person. It's just that I've had a lot on my plate lately. I'm not usually vulgar. It's just that other driver is such an idiot. I'm usually pretty laid back, but it's just my kids have been out of control all week. Like we think that when squeezed, what comes out is fundamentally different than what's truly in our heart. But according to Jesus, that is not the case. Verse 45, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The same could be true of our attitudes out of the abundance of the heart our attitude comes or our actions out of the abundance of the heart we act or out of the abundance of the heart we react. See our words, our reactions, our responses, they don't just form out of thin air. They are drawn out of our heart by our circumstances. Circumstances may give us the moment, they may give us the occasion to respond. They give us the occasion for us to see what's actually in our heart, but they don't cause us to act or speak or respond a certain way. What causes us to do that is what's ultimately in our heart. This is why one biblical counselor wrote, circumstances are contributory, not causative. We tend to think that the circumstances of our life are what cause us to respond a certain way. Well, he cut me off in traffic, therefore I said what I should not have said. She did not observe the 12-item limit in the Kroger Express line, therefore my frustration and anger was really caused by her. My kids didn't this, and therefore I that, which is why it is so easy for us to think, if only my spouse would stop doing this, then I wouldn't be so angry. Or if only my kids would start doing that, then I could finally give them more grace. Or if only my parent would finally this, then I would be able to give them the respect that they deserve. I mean, you fill in the blanks. If only 
blank. Then I blank. What would that be? If only someone would do this, then I could do that. But friends, our sin, our anger, our unkind words, our crude jokes, our disrespectful talk, it comes from the heart. It reveals something about us. I was talking with Pastor Chris this week uh, about this text. And he said, you know, I learned really quick in Bible college, the guys that had fallen back into pornography, you, you could always tell by the way that they talked, by the things that they found funny, by the way that they used their words, by the things that they joked about, by the lack of filter in their speech. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can't say that harsh word, that's not really me. It's just that I'm so tired. Now that bit of gossip, that's really not me. I just wasn't paying attention. Because circumstances are contributive, not causative. Others don't cause us to sin. They don't cause us to fail to honor God comes from our heart. So what is the antidote? Well, according to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon said the antidote is to keep the heart, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from your heart flows the springs of life. That same picture of out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The picture of a freshwater stream or pond which is fed, and based on what it's fed, it's going to determine the health or the makeup of that stream or that pond. And if it's if it's fed from a from a dirty or polluted stream, it's going to be a dirtier polluted. Solomon says, guard your heart, keep your heart, maximum security around your heart. Watch your heart with all vigilance, all the time. Why? For from your heart flows the spring of life. And I think Jesus is beginning to wrap up this sermon on the plain by reminding them then and us now that ultimately the, the faithful life for the Christian is not a life of just simply saying, okay, I'm going to try to be more loving. I'm going to try to be more patient. I'm going to try to more judge rightly. I'm going to try to just do to others as they would have them do to me. But rather, it is first taking stock of our own heart and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our heart. To then be the kind of people that God is calling us to be. And this is also why we need one another. I think this is another way that this connects to this section right before about the log in the eye and the speck in the eye. Because not only do we need to recognize that we are imperfect, we need to be reminded that those around us are imperfect. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are imperfect as well. And rather than focusing on external behavior, the way they measure up or don't measure up to our standard. 
It should be primarily focused and aimed at the heart, ministering to the heart of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reality is we are all inconsistent. (laughs) If the point of these verses is to guard us from being hypocrites, which I think it is, then it's good to be reminded that a hypocrite isn't someone who talks differently than they live, right? A hypocrite isn't someone who says, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm doing the best I can by God's grace, and then from time to time fails. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who says, I have it all together. I don't fail. I don't struggle. I don't deal with the sin that you deal with. I don't have to deal with the problems. I don't fail like you fail. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one way when really they are not. See, the good news this morning is that there is not a one of us in this room who always speaks rightly, who always says the right thing, whose overflow is perfect. There's only one person who has ever lived and walked on earth like that, and that was Jesus Christ. The good news is that if you belong to Jesus, your life is hidden with Jesus. Your identity is now found in Him. His righteousness is now applied and credited to your account. It doesn't mean we don't seek after the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't walk in obedience to be conformed into the image of the Son of God. But it does mean that when we fail, when the overflow of our lives is ugly, when the overflow is not God-honoring, we not only go to war at the heart level with our sin, but we at the same time rest in the fact that it is God who holds us fast. That it is Jesus' righteousness that is accounted to our credit. That we are travelers, to borrow John Bunyan's picture from Pilgrim's Progress, we are travelers on a journey to the celestial city who will fall off the trail and who will fail and who will stumble and who will be defeated from time to time. It doesn't make us unchristian, it makes us human. And yet, like Paul, one thing we do, we forget what's behind and we strain for what's ahead. To every day live lives of joyful submission to King Jesus, who has guarded us and secured us and sealed us for the day of redemption. You see, we live in the joyful recognition that God the Father has accomplished for us our salvation. And it's not dependent on the overflow of our life. And then that God places us into a family, a church with brothers and sisters in the faith. Some who struggle like we do, others who struggle in other ways. And God calls us to judge rightly and to focus on the heart, to begin with our own heart, our own log in our eyes. And to recognize that what comes out of us is simply the overflow of what's within us. Therefore, we seek to do heart ministry with one another all the time. To walk beside brothers and sisters of Christ through encouragement and warning and friendship and help. That we might stoke each other's love for Jesus more. That we might find greater joy in Him than anywhere else. Friends, that is our mission as a church. To speak the gospel to hearts that are dead. And to teach and counsel the gospel to hearts made new 
in Jesus. And to live together in such a way that we will be all the more ready to see King Jesus when he appears. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray.